Hello and welcome to this, the first episode in a new series of podcasts created by the team at Monocle24 for Unlimited, a new forum powered by UBS. Over the next few months, under the auspices of Unlimited, we will be working together with UBS to challenge and interrogate conventional notions of wealth, ownership, luxury and legacy. Today we're looking at how the meaning of luxury has changed in recent years, and what it now means to both consumers and creators. We've been on a whirlwind global tour and have sat down with five inspirational and innovative entrepreneurs to find out how they understand the meaning of that word, luxury, which has tended to be so abused and overused. Some have transformed seemingly everyday items into products of staggering complexity and rarity, while others have redefined the meaning of luxury in that traditionally most luxurious of industries, fashion. We start with Edward Neal, an entrepreneur who has pioneered a rediscovery of traditional Brazilian tailoring. The industry had its heyday in the 1950s, but fell into decline towards the end of the 20th century. That is, until Neil took up the challenge and established Reunidas, a clothing brand that harks back to Brazil's sartorial golden age. On a personal level, I, I'm not completely British. I grew up in, in India. I'm half South African. I've always felt at home in developing countries. And so on that level, I've always been interested in, in working with and helping developing countries. So. Then, to narrow it down a bit more, I, I moved to Brazil a few years ago, and uh, several years ago actually, and discovered a quite marvellous country that was, as far as Reunidas is concerned, was really underselling itself and brand Brazil. I, I was fascinated by the fact there's this huge country of over 200 million people with the biggest diaspora populations of really interesting immigrant communities like Italians, Japanese, etc., etc., and how the narrative, the brand narrative, was very narrow and essentially about the beach and samba and you know, how to stretch. There's also the Amazon, but it's still very, very narrow. So I wanted to explore that. And as someone who's interested in history and heritage, I, I delved very deeply and discovered some fascinating things within the rubble, particularly in the urban rubble. And as far as Brazilian tailoring is concerned, it was really interesting because the Italian immigrants and the Japanese immigrants, and before that, the British who controlled it in the 19th century, essentially had huge influences on things like tailoring. And so there was a unique fusion of, of crafts. And I was really interested in exploring that, researching it, and telling that story you sort of drawing it out of the rubble, so to speak. And yeah, and then that, that led me to Reunidas and, and reviving Brazilian tailoring. Luxury, there's so many different ways to define it, and I'm sure there's much pithier ways than I would say to connected to desirability, connected to, you know, products and brands that make people feel better about themselves, connected to authenticity, uh, craftsmanship, of course, the origins of luxury probably stem from you know, aristocracy or de facto aristocracies and, and being able to consume that. So it's a combination of all those things, and I suppose there's a price point as well to pay for that. But I think today, I think you're seeing a slight change in that it's not necessarily about, you know, the older it is, the better it is. It's not necessarily about the aristocracy, although you still get you know, people with European brands that are connected to them. I think you're starting to see a, the consumer believes luxury is something that 
yeah, essentially makes people feel, you know, much better about themselves. There's a blurred area between premium and luxury that academics can argue forever, but it's certainly changing. And I'm personally interested in the future of luxury, and I believe in the next 50 years, we are going to see more luxury brands coming from emerging markets, whether it's Brazil, India, China. I refuse to believe that over the next 50 years, we're going to be buying the same stuff from Europe and possibly America and Japan. You're going to see more things coming from the emerging markets. And what that means is for that to happen, that means the quality needs to improve, the storytelling needs to improve, the experience needs to improve, and that needs to be focused on a global audience. And if you think about a lot of these emerging nations through time, from India to China, it's actually a relatively short period of time that they've been associated with poor quality or people don't want to buy made in China, made in India, made in Brazil. You know, China with, you know, in historically, famously with all its dynasties, you know, produced some of the most extraordinary stuff that the Europeans were jealous of. Even India and the British Empire, you know, the, the British needed artisans from India to, to create a lot of their things. In Brazil's case, it's specifically unique in that it's more easy to consume because it's an immigrant nation with a twist and craft nations that people are familiar with, like Italy, like Britain, like Japan, and then with an interesting twist to do with the extraordinary amount of raw materials there and interesting things like climate and, you know, the, that lifestyle of Brazil, which is, it's almost like a twist on, on what we already know. But I do think, in general, going back to the point about luxury, I think we're going to see more brands come as these markets open and they become more global-facing because when you're an internal market, inward-looking, sometimes the quality drops and that's starting to change. I suppose true high-end luxury is, you, you see the full providence and it's from the ground all the way to the consumer. And I I do agree that there is definitely part of that that's important in luxury, yes. I think there's going to be more competition from, you know, emerging market brands uh, in every space. And, you know, you only have to look at history to know that this must be the case. For example, in Japan, in the 1950s, Japan didn't even have a car industry, effectively. And they made conscious efforts to build that up. By the 70s, they were taking over the U.S., and now today you see premium luxury Japanese cars and they have their deemed to be an authority on high-end car making. Same goes for Korea. Korea was an impoverished country in the 70s and it's done something similar with cars and it's done something similar with tech, with brands like Samsung. Now they may not be you know, full-on luxury, but they're certainly getting there and you can see that timeline. China the same, you know, it's a more recent example. And you're seeing emerging brands buying into that quality, whether it's a Chinese company buying a car brand, a Chinese company buying a high-end piano label in Europe, uh, whether it's Brazilian brands like Natura buying Aesop. They're getting savvier in the fact that we need to plug holes and improve and learn how to sell to a global audience and a brand. And you're certainly seeing that. But uh, I, I think that's going to be a feature. But, you know, again, I can certainly speak for you know how i perceive men to to consume they they are driven by authenticity authority in a certain area you want you know the best tie maker the best umbrella maker it's, it's those kind of things and you know if you can produce that quality of product and 
tie that with a fantastic brand story, I think no matter what history tells us, that resonates. From Brazilian tailoring to British tea now, our next commentator is Henrietta Lavelle, who gave up a career in corporate finance to establish a loose-leaf tea brand called the Rare Tea Company. Turning an everyday item into a sought-after luxury is no mean feat, but with great branding and a dedication to a high-quality product, Lavelle has managed it with aplomb. Here's her take on what makes a luxury a luxury. Well, I sort of fell in love with tea in China, where they still spend a higher proportion of their income on tea than they do on alcohol, where they really have an understanding and appreciation of quality and value. I decided to make that my life because I'm a nutter, because we didn't really have a quality tea market when I began 12, 13 years ago. And um, we had to create a market as well as a business, which is um, in many circles considered insanity. And everyone said to me, why the hell are you setting a company that doesn't sell tea bags when everybody drinks tea bags? But I believed in a future where a different appreciation of value and quality would be um, a reality, and which has proved to be true. Tea was always considered a massive luxury, going back to when we first started drinking it in the 16th, 17th century. It was imported from China, it was all handmade, and it was incredibly valuable. So I was going through our family archives, which we have, back to um, the first recording of tea that I could find, which was my great times five grandmother bought some tea in June of 1712 and one of the teas she bought was a black boya china tea, a Chinese black tea and she bought three pounds of it for the price of four pounds and ten shillings which in today's money would be thousands just for three pounds of tea. It was a sign of sophistication, of, of quality, of wealth that you had the money to buy it but also you had appreciation of this very fine special thing and it was more expensive than champagne or brandy or anything that you could purchase and um, we've somehow along our years of drinking cheap industrial tea lost that appreciation for the fine things we're not surprised when we buy a beautiful bottle of wine that it costs a bit more or a fine cheese or a olive oil luxury is, is have some be able to have something really extraordinary that is out of the ordinary perhaps I don't think it's going to showy and it doesn't necessarily have an expensive price tag or label it's something that's really beautiful special delicious has an aesthetic value of one way touch, smell, taste and it's something that make it truly luxurious is something that's quite hard to get hold of possibly and there's not a great deal of it. Some of the things I buy are quite extraordinary. I mean I buy a little tiny harvest of almond blossom from a small farmer in Spain in Tarragona and he produces this particular kind of almond and the blossoms in early spring of that blossom are enticing, incredible. They have a lot of pollen on them and it just brings a flavour of honey. And these uh, almond blossoms are so difficult to harvest and, and dry that we can only get about three kilos of a year. And that just goes to Alan Ducasse and a restaurateur in uh, San Francisco called Corey Lee, who has a restaurant called Benu. And those two gentlemen take the, the harvest. And it's not that that uh, almond blossom is particularly... We've all seen almond blossom. It's that particular tree, that particular harvest, that particular varietal of almonds that makes it truly wonderful and luxurious and the fact that there is only three kilos a year makes it real luxury. We have um, a line of tea that's um, in Waitrose and you think well how can that be that rare but we've been working with the same producers for about nine years now to grow a little bit more to produce a little more so that we can have a wider distribution of their teas but they're still all handmade handcrafted so a green tea you might be able to buy in Waitrose is actually made in a wok over charcoal in the same way it's been made for 3,000 years that is relatively rare and that production is incredibly rare but the fact that it's available it doesn't have to be an undemocratic thing 
There are many, many farmers around the world in small, isolated places producing incredible tea. It's more that there's a lack of market than there's a lack of tea. There's beautiful tea being produced. What there isn't is necessarily a great appreciation that the more expensive teas have value. So my great times fine grandmother was quite happy to pay thousands of pounds for a really great tea, but it's harder to find that in modern society. But that is changing, so that's the future. People are are excited and willing to pay for beautiful things that will give them a huge treat. But I think the future is going away also from the kind of utilitarian approach and thinking, oh, it has to be easy. I need to put my really beautiful leaf in a nylon bag. That's going to go. I really don't think we're going to go to a fine hotel and see a tea bag, even if it is in a what they call silken, which means plastic bag. My greatest luxury is having the freedom to be able to go and visit these incredible places. You go to India, Africa, China. I mean, next week I'll be travelling across the States, working with some of our collaborators there, selling the tea as well. So I get to go, I have the luxury of working with some of the best restaurants in the world and I get to go and eat at them and they look after me. And uh, I get to go behind the scenes in some amazing places. You know, I can have family meal at Noma, which, you know, however... However rich you are, however black or gold or platinum your credit card is, those are places perhaps you don't get the luxury to see. And the ability to go when I want, when I want, to be your own boss, to to be the um, master of your own destiny, that's not a luxury everyone can have, and I really feel very grateful to have that. Staying in the realm of food and drink, let's hear now from graphic designer Paul Tomlinson, founder of luxury chocolate brand Coco Hernando. The company was inspired by Tomlinson's own love of fashion, and each bar is infused with the flavours and spices of a particular region or country, from Mexico to Morocco. Like Lavelle, he took a ubiquitous product and transformed it into an uncommon luxury. started off being on a train in India that was a place I'd always wanted to be and we were traveling from Goa right down to the uh, southern tip of Kerala and it was an incredible experience just watching these amazing landscapes and just soaking up the atmosphere speaking to the chai wallers and all the rest of it when I was I was giving some masala chai tea and I thought that would that just tasted amazing just kind of epitomized India all those amazing spices and just being surrounded in that environment on the on the classic kind of stereotypical Indian train it just kind of just felt like uh, it epitomised everything Indian to me. So I just wondered if it tastes good with chocolate. So it led to the idea of combining the two and then subsequently led to this idea of connecting places with the flavours using chocolate. It comes across in terms of the flavour. So I try to find a flavour that I can connect uh, indicatively with a place. And also the packaging, I try to find uh, a design that's going to reflect that country in some way or shape or form. Well, in terms of our products, I wanted to create something that looks beautiful and tastes beautiful. So that's, that's like top level for me. But also in terms of uh, attention to detail, it's, it's everything. Everything has got to be considered from the from obviously the flavours and the chocolate to make, make, make sure it tastes correct and make sure that people are going to love it. But also the packaging and from the colours and the, the, the colour schemes to the typefaces, to the wording, everything is, is thought through. It's quality, isn't it? And it's something that I've read a lot about. It's, it's, I think more, more and more people seem to be interested and willing to spend more money on quality products than they are just to spend lots and lots of money. It's more of a wanting quality things as opposed to wanting something that's um, going to make them look exclusive. I come from a design background, so I've always loved things that look amazing. And the vintage travel poster 
theme has always has always really kind of resonated with me. And with these particular new range of products, I was inspired by a designer called Aldo Cosmati, who was a 1950s illustrator and he created this beautiful range of uh, posters for BOAC, which is the precursor to British Airways. I think there's a, there seems to be a growing interest in just quality generally, isn't it? People are more willing to spend more money on something, for, if it's from, with regards to our products, and people that buy them as gifts for other people. But people just want to have nice things. I think um, and it just goes back to that and ties in with that experience idea, just people living more for the moment than just splashing loads of money on something just that's never going to be seen again. Living for the moment. That's also something that resonates with Julien Pruvost, who runs heritage French candle maker Sia Trudon. For him and for the centuries-old Maison, luxury is about stealing a moment to relax and take stock. But it's also about the time that goes into the making of a quality, handcrafted product. We caught up with him in New York to find out more. When I hear the word luxury and I think of it on a personal level, I'm drawn to ideas of time, emotion, hedonism, uh, meaning uh, being able to make the most out of time, discover new places, spend quality uh, moments with friends, family, to really feel the moment. And I think today that is true luxury because those moments are actually rare in comparison maybe with our upbeat lifestyle. You can talk about the notion of time um, when it comes to a a quality product. Uh, Nothing quality or of interest comes immediately. Time is necessary to craft something. Time is necessary to learn the craft to craft something. And I think a Sire Trudon candle, as simple as it may seem, requires many skills on various levels. Glass uh, construction skills, fragrance conception skills, design skills, uh, research and development for new formulas, wax formulas, putting together production processes, All this time together amounts uh, to a great product, a quality product. And luxury uh, does not happen without quality. And quality does not happen without proper time put into it. There's a lot to be said about craft uh, and how uh, when you perfect something over the years, yes, the the goal, the ultimate goal is for it to be the best possible uh, product, the best possible craft leading to the best possible product. It's close in a way to maybe the concept of luxury in Japan, uh, where uh, the craftsman over time uh, gains his, his skills and perfects them to create the perfect object that is almost blended in between the craftsman and the object itself. Fair enough, Sir Trudeau is not to, maybe not to that extreme because we, we reproduce uh, standardized objects too. But many aspects of the objects make them, each one of them, absolutely unique. Clearly, there is a notion of maybe of standard, standardization, even in luxury, where a certain fringe of what we call luxury goods have, has parted away from the notion of craftsmanship. And that's okay. It's simply not the realm we associate ourselves with. That segment of luxury is more tied into technological evolution, and that is also very important. I mean, luxury certain luxury brands have brought incredible new skills, 
to, to just the world of uh, finished goods. But I think Sierra Trudon is relates more to a, let's say, a, a more traditional vision of luxury uh, that ties into craftsmanship. There's a structure, there's a basis, uh, there's a perquisite that we're, ma- we're manufacturing candles. Uh, we also propose other types of goods, but if we look at candles alone, um, it will be about adapting on and on. I mean, if if Sierra is still uh, present today, it's because it has been able to adapt its products to the to the contemporary world. That means sourcing sus- sustainable uh, materials and components, bringing new ideas to the realm of perfumes. I think a good way to answer the question would be to look back a little bit how uh, the company maintained itself uh, over centuries. Uh, it adapted to its time uh, from a technological standpoint, meaning that candles were a necessity simply to, to live, to shed light. It was as simple as that. And then gradually, as electricity and gas uh, made it, uh, their appearance, it had to turn to a more decorative aspect. And then when you say decorative aspect, that means trends, and who says trends means change, uh, and it's, it cannot be everlasting. And, there, and then came into play a new dimension, which is fragrance. So now we're looking at a combination of functionality, decorative aspects, and also emotional aspect through scent. Will there be another aspect again in the future? But what we have now at hand is already very complex and much more can be said through those different uh, uh, vectors, whether it's scent, decorative aspects, and light. Sertional will most likely keep on manufacturing candles, but we'll probably explore other means of uh, conveying scent, other means of conveying light, maybe using wax. We have proved it recently with some of our new products. The future of the brand it will not only solely be in candles, and we, we have gained expertise in uh, fragrance instruction and creation. We will be uh, looking more and more in, uh, towards that direction. We give the final word today to Oyuna Tserendorj, founder of Kashmir Specialist Oyuna. Originally from Mongolia, Tserendorj left her homeland to travel and study around the world. What began as a small collection of throws made with Kashmir from her native Mongolia has become one of the most respected Kashmir brands in the world. So basically I'm, I'm from Mongolia where I spent my first 18 years and then I moved to Budapest to study design and textile. I worked for textile and different textile and fashion brands in London. And then I arrived in London and basically that's when I set up Oyuna. Part of Mongolia is, is Kashmir because in order to have Kashmir, you know, Kashmir goats, you need to have high mountains, cold weather. Mongolian winters are very cold in order to protect the goats from the natural uh, forces. If you think about the word luxury, it has so many layers. For certain situations nowadays, I think it could even feel being alive is a luxury after all this happen- that happening around the world. But uh, going back to me, I think the luxury is, for me, it's time. 
quality time, especially quality time I spend with my sons without thinking in the back of my mind, oh, I have to do this, I have to do that. And that's so precious, you know, I, I don't get that much. But then extending from that, going back to Mongolia, I think for me it's a luxury to work with Mongolian Kashmir and in this amazing fiber that Mongolia and its amazing nomads give to the world. And I work with it and I put it on the world stage in fashion and design world and it's real luxury for me. How luxury is having great team in in our company, which is not always given. I think luxury in general is a very, in a way it's, it's all experiences, but full experiences. Like for example, it is luxury that and I live in London and it is luxury if I go to a restaurant I experienced amazing, delicious food cooked by a chef who really thought about the whole process and also presentation and also waiters who actually with it. From the moment you open the door restaurant, like formatting of the menu, experience, that's luxury. Even going to a shop where you choose a product that has heritage provenance not just for commercial purposes but the, the brands that offer products with the whole story and provenance the brands that thought about the product and not just product but the whole experience full circle i think that's that's very important i think comfort is so important it's great to have an amazing looking dress made out of glass or really or amazing but once you wear it if it's stiff you can't move you know you can't feel yourself 100% that's not luxury for me the material is so important i think the highest quality material obviously in my case it's pure high quality cashmere but then the button needs to be the right button made out of really cool material innovative but at the same time materials that are respectful for the planet, threads that we use, number of stitches, is all about detail. So it's a combination of how it looks in terms of design, because we don't want to have boring designs, combination of cool design, attention to detail, materials, and user experience. That's why I mentioned heritage before. Nowadays, once people don't just buy product as it looks in the window, but they, I think, customers would like products that will have a real heritage and story and considered thinking how the whole product is produced. As we've heard, the nature and perception of that word luxury have evolved over time. This slippery concept no longer resides in an internationally recognized logo or the number of digits on a price tag. It's about heritage and storytelling, a sense of singularity and uniqueness. It's about quality and craftsmanship, the way a product is made. What's also changing is that traditionally mundane items, a cup of tea and a bar of chocolate, are being reimagined by a new generation of entrepreneurs intent on redefining the meaning of luxury. But let's not forget, these businesses aren't loss-making vanity projects. They are successful businesses that are supported by loyal customers. Which reveals the real truth here. Consumers are demanding these things. 
more thoughtful design, a greater sense of provenance, and the intangible value of a unique experience. <laughs>